Thank you, Alicia. Good morning, church family. Uh, spring Forward Sunday. Good to see you at the 11 o'clock service. Uh, we got the forward, but not the spring. Did anyone notice we only sort of got half the deal? Like we're supposed to spring forward, but we're supposed to be, oh, it's spring, it's sunny, it's warm. No, no, just forward. Winter forward is what we got uh, uh, so far uh, this morning. Uh, we find ourselves in our fifth sermon covering three chapters that I'm sure, you know, about a month ago, this was a, this was a topic that was just burning within you. I want to know about food sacrificed to idols. Uh, may not have been a super important question for many of us, but it was a burning question for the, uh, for the people of uh, Corinth. And uh, I want to remind you just before we uh, jump uh, in that uh, as we continue to worship, part of that is singing God's praise, hearing from God's word, and another way is connecting with the body and giving. We're here to, to fellowship, to participate. The Church Center app is a real easy way to be, able to, uh, to be able to do that. And so I invite you, you can either scan the QR code on the seat behind you or you can download the app through the App Store. If you're old school, uh, then you can go ahead and use one of the paper things um, for brand new visitors. We've got a welcome center at the, uh, uh, out there in the foyer straight through those doors and connection cards can be uh, filled out. Let us know how we can be praying for you. Let us know if you have a question or if you want to sign up for something. Again, the app is the simplest way to do that, but there's some paper ways available. You can give a paper offering, a check or cash. There's a donation box at the, at the back of the room uh, as well. The Apostle Paul had, has, this is uh, uh, not his first letter that he had written to them. First Corinthians is not the first letter. There have been several letters that have been going back and forth between this church. There were messengers that were going back and forth and sharing information or details. And Paul is writing this letter really to set the record straight. And they had a lot of questions for Paul. They wanted to know about marriage and singleness and sexuality. And they also wanted to know one of the burning questions they had was, what do we do about food sacrificed uh, to idols? And they, they really wanted to know, is it allowed? It is, is it allowed for us uh, to, to eat this meat? And Paul, he's obviously working hard. He's taken three chapters to try to answer their question, but really... What Paul is getting at is, is that that's the wrong question. When it comes to Christian ethics, to Christian morality, when it comes to especially situations that are kind of a gray area, not completely black or white, not completely clear, the wrong question to ask is, is it allowed? The, Paul, the question that Paul wants them to ask is, is it loving? Too often we ask, is this allowed? Am I allowed to do it? It's only thinking about ourselves. Is this allowed? But the question, is this loving, is not only thinking about ourselves, it's thinking about, is what I'm going to do going to express love for God and love for our neighbor? The title for today's message is, The Good of My Neighbor and the Glory of God. This is how Paul is going to bring this whole argument to a conclusion. This is, this is, this is, these are his, his final words on this topic that he's been working his way through. Remember, this is the flow of his argument he addressed the original question in chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. He brought up the idea of conscience. Some people have a weak conscience. Some people have a strong conscience. And the difference between strong and weak is a little bit counterintuitive. But he, he begins by talking about that. Then he uses himself as an illustration in chapter 9, how he laid aside 
his own rights, just like an athlete lays aside the right to sleep in or the right to eat unhealthy food. The athlete disciplines himself or herself so as to win the prize. That's what Paul does. He says, I lay aside my rights all of the time. Then he moves from a positive illustration to a negative illustration. On the topic of idolatry and food, he says, idolatry is not something to be trifled with. Look at all of the different times in the history of of the people of God in the Old Testament, how they fell into idolatry. Also notice that in all of those stories, food was interconnected. Then he hit them with the first and clearest application. A Christian should never go into a pagan temple as part of the worship service for a false god and eat food in that context. So that was a flat out no Now he's going to get into the second uh, bit of application. What do you do at the market? What do you do when you're invited over to someone's house? So that's where Paul's headed. And again, Paul's aim is not that we would satisfy our freedom, but that we would glorify God. Not that we would gratify our desires in the moment, but that we would edify our neighbor. The good of my neighbor and the glory of God. That's what Paul has in store for us as he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray for God's help before we dive in. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we were able to wake up this morning and get into a car or catch a bus or an Uber to come on roads that are well-maintained and that are safe with a police force that is out to look out for our best interests. Thank you that we've been able to gather here in freedom. Father, we think as we enjoy all of these freedoms that we so often take for granted, we think of those Christians who are in Ukraine who are trying to uh, gather in some way, shape, or form, or who already have gathered this morning. We think about our partner church, Vertical Church in Kiev. We think about our other GCC partner churches in Romania and Moldova that are receiving uh, refugees on an ongoing uh, basis, Lord. We pray for peace in that area of the world. We pray that the church would remain strong and remain steadfast and faithful and fruitful, even in the midst of adversity. And Lord, we pray now as as our brothers and sisters in Eastern Europe are are opening the word of God and are, are teaching it and aiming to apply it to their lives, I pray that the same would happen here. Lord, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write these words to the church at Corinth, but these words speak today to the church in Eastern Europe, to the church in East Asia. Uh, to, to the church all around the world, all different languages, all different cultures, Lord. And we ask that your word would speak to us right now by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's been so good to hear other voices, our voices singing in harmony and in unison, lifting our voice of praise to you. And now, Lord God, we want to hear your voice speaking through your living and active word. So we pray that you would do that for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So in this passage here, in, in, in chapter 10, just at the end, at the beginning of verse 11, Paul is going to talk about the good of our neighbor and the glory of God, and he's going to use two case studies, two hypothetical situations to, to allow the church at Corinth to really think, how does this apply in everyday life? But he begins by talking about the good of our neighbor. That needs to be our pursuit. Not just is this allowed, but is this 
loving is what I'm about to do, is what I'm about to eat and the context of where I'm eating it and who is watching while I'm eating it, is this happening and can I do this for the good of my neighbor? So if you're taking notes today, that's the first point, the good of our neighbor. Now look with me at verse 23. It says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Now this might sound familiar, this, this, this slogan, this phrase, all things are lawful. Notice that it's in quotation marks. Paul is quoting back, you know, in today's day and age would be a popular hashtag on social media. Something, uh, sort of a, a buzzword or a phrase that was always spoken in Corinth. All things are lawful, lawful. Everything's permissible. Do whatever you want. And that was being, a, uh, that was being, uh, appropriated by the church in Corinth. They, they saw that out in the culture. They heard the message of grace and forgiveness and they tried to bridge the gap and say, you know what, in Christianity, all things are lawful as well. And Paul had already used this, this quotation back in chapter six when he was talking about Corinthian Christians who were regularly going to visit prostitutes and they were saying, all things are lawful. And you know, the stomach is for food and the body is for sex. And so I can just go and sleep with this process. It doesn't matter how I live or what I do because all things are lawful. And Paul corrected them by saying, but I will not be dominated by anything because what is described in our world, and it was true in the, book of, in the, in the city of Corinth as well, that what is handed to us and offered to us in the name of sexual freedom actually leads to bondage. It actually leads to slavery. So Paul says, yeah, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So he quoted the slogan once as it relates to personal sin. Remember, he told them, you sin against your own body when you sin sexually, and your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It was all inward focus. Paul's saying, look what you're doing to yourself. Now he quotes the slogan again, but it's not about a sin that's personal and the damage that it's doing to the body, the person as an individual. It's what it's doing to the body as the community. Now he's talking about relational unity where he says all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. I love the way the NIV translates this verse. It says not all things are constructive. We all know what it's like to receive criticism and what it's like to receive constructive criticism, right? We, we, no one likes receiving criticism if, if it's just for the purpose of tearing us down. But constructive criticism, the aim is to build us up. And Paul says there's a, there's a way that we can live our lives that will either tear people down or there's a way that we can live our lives that will build people uh, this is one of Paul's favorite illustrations for the church. Back in chapter three, he talked about laying a foundation and then building with gold, silver, and precious stones. And other people are building with wood, hay, and straw. And then Jesus, the building inspector, is gonna set it all on fire. It's all about building. Later on in chapter 14, when he's talking about spiritual gifts and prophecy and tongues, he's saying the whole point of the gift is to build up. If you're speaking in another language and no one can hear what you're saying, that's just good for you, but you're not building up the church. You're not doing anything constructive. If everyone's prophesying at the same time, sure, the people that are doing the prophesying are, are, are 
being fulfilled in what they're doing, but no one can understand what's going on. No one is being built up. Paul loves this analogy of building up. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things build up. Knowing your individual rights, knowing what you're allowed to do isn't all you're supposed to know. We're not supposed to ask the question, is it allowed? We're supposed to ask the question, is it loving? Then he says in verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That's where he begins, the good of our neighbor. That should be our aim. Later on in chapter 13, Paul's going to talk about love. Chapter 13, verse 5, he says, love does not insist on its own way. You don't seek your own good. You're supposed to seek the good of others. Paul said in Romans 15, 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Philippians 2, 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is all over the New Testament that we're supposed to set aside what we think we're entitled to, set aside what we think we have a right to, and try to figure out how can I best love in this situation. So in every context where we're interacting with a neighbor, who is my neighbor? Remember Jesus told us who our neighbor is. In, in telling the parable of, of the Samaritan, our, our, neighbor, our neighbor can be anyone. Our neighbor could be a member of your family. A neighbor could be your neighbor in your neighborhood or in your apartment building. A neighbor could be a stranger who's waiting in the same bus terminal as you are. A neighbor is your coworker or your employer or your employees. You see, in every situation and circumstance, every time we enter a room, every time we enter into a relational context, there's a set of expectations. If we're the boss or if we're the employee, if we're the parent or if we're the child, if we're the long-term resident in the neighborhood or we're the new family that just moved in, if, if, if we're the person who, uh, who uh, runs the, 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 uh, the apartment co-op or someone who is a tenant, someone, in every situation, there's a set of expectations. And what we normally do is we walk into the bus the bus terminal, or we walk into our apartment building, or we walk into our neighborhood, or we walk into our family dining room, or we walk into our church, and we think, we look at the people around us, and we think, this is what I deserve. This is what I'm expecting these people to give me. This is what I am entitled to. This is what I have a right to. And that's sort of our default setting as fallen human beings. We, 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 we come and we ask, what do I deserve from these people? When we should be asking, how can I serve these people? Whether you're the child or the parent, we should be asking the same question. Whether we're the employer or the employee, whether we're the long-term resident or the new family, whether we were first in line or just arrived at the end of the line in the bus, in the bus terminal, whatever it is, we need to ask ourselves, how can I serve my neighbor? I know what my own interests are, but we need to stop and think, what are the interests of others? So then Paul, after laying down this foundation, so here we are, we, we've got we've to pursue the good of our neighbor. We're not asking ourselves what's allowed, we're asking ourselves what is loving. We're not wondering, what do I deserve? We're wondering, how can I serve? And then it gives two hypothetical scenarios, two case studies 
for the church at Corinth to, to wrestle through and to think about. Here's the first case study. It's, it involves grocery shopping. Case study number one is grocery shopping. Now remember, there was one group of people at the church of Corinth who were so convinced that based off their theological knowledge of idols and false gods and that God is the true God, based on their knowledge of food that Jesus had declared all food clean, that they had taken that to the ultimate extreme such that their conscience allowed them to walk right into an idol temple and participate in an idolatrous worship service and eat the food therein and think that they were totally doing nothing Wrong, And Paul is telling them what you were doing was wrong. That's what, that's what he just told them, that you're actually participating in the worship of demons. So there was, those people are going to church. And then like two seats over, in the same small group Bible study, there's these other people who were so uptight about never wanting anything to do with idol worship that they wouldn't eat any meat that was, that was offered previously to an idol. And they wouldn't even go to the grocery store with, without, without a list. They'd have their grocery list, and then they would have a list of questions. And they would go to the butcher and demand, I need to know the history of behind this meat. And the butcher's kind of like, I, I don't know. Like, would, do you want to buy it or do you not? So Paul is addressing how we ought to think about shopping as it relates to food sacrifice to idols. Verse 25 says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Paul says, if it's at the grocery store, you're not in a temple anymore. And if you're paying money for meat, you're not participating in worship. Remember, food is neutral. The, the issue is not what's on the menu, the issue is the venue. Paul already told them, at communion, it's just bread and it's just wine or, or grape juice. But when we come together as a church, there's koinonia, there's fellowship, there's communia, there's communion that's happening. Communion with God and communion with one another. So you could eat bread for breakfast and have grape juice at lunch. But when you come to church, it's something different. It has a, a special meaning. Food is neutral, but if you put it in a certain context, it's no longer neutral. In the same way, meat on its own is neutral. But if that meat is placed in the context of an idol's temple, that changes everything. So Paul says, if you go to the market, don't come with your grocery list and your list of questions. Stop bothering the butcher. Just eat whatever that he has on his, uh, on his table. Just, just eat whatever is for sale. You don't have to raise questions of conscience. Now Paul is speaking to this group and to that group. This group is called the weak conscience group, which is kind of counterintuitive. When we would think if someone had a weak conscience, we would think that, well, their conscience doesn't work and they just do everything and they don't have a guilty, no, that's not what a weak conscience is. A weak conscience is someone who feels guilty about things they shouldn't feel guilty about. And then the other group of people who you might call the strong, although Paul doesn't call them that, and, and the, the, the strong ones are the ones who, who feel like that they can do anything and, and, and they, they could use a little bit more conscience in their life. So Paul is speaking to the weak conscious people, telling them, 
when you go to the market, don't worry about it. You're free. You're not in a temple. You're at Loblaws. Just buy whatever is there and eat it with a clear... So he's speaking to the weak people. He's also speaking to the go into the temple people who he just rebuked. And he's telling them, okay, I need you to be sensitive. How sensitive do I need you to be? Well, I don't need you to become like the weak brother because that's not going to help. So when you go to the market, follow your own conscience and your own conscience is fine with that meat. So just go ahead and buy it without worrying about it. And then he, he sums it all up in verse 26. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's quoting Psalm 24 there. Everything belongs to God. And that meat, although in the temple it was being used for evil purposes, when it's out of the temple, that's the meat that God provided. That's the meat that belongs to God. It doesn't belong to the idol. It belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So the person with the weak conscience needs to stop asking these questions. It is counterintuitive that this person is called weak. Because I'm sure at some point we've We've had someone in our lives who we referred to as a strong Christian. They're very strong in their faith. And one of the evidences that we would normally use to show that someone is a serious Christian, a strong Christian, who takes their faith very seriously, very strong, one of the reasons that we would describe them that way is because they got a big long list of things they don't do. Because they're really, they're, Paul says, the, the person with the big long list, they're not a strong Christian. They don't have a strong conscience. They actually have a weak conscience. They feel guilty about things they shouldn't feel guilty. And they make other people feel guilty about things they shouldn't feel guilty about. But the earth is the Lord's. The meat belongs to him. And so people can follow their, their conscience and not be troubled when they go to the grocery store. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, For everything created by God is good. Amen. That's Genesis 1. And nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving. Now, some people try to use a verse like this to try to justify, you know, things like substance abuse. Or, oh, it's created by God. And so I'm just, well, is that why God created it? And can you participate in some of those activities and give thanks to God at the same time? I don't think so. So... The question we got to be asking ourselves is, is it allowed? No, no. Is it loving? That's the right question. But another question is, can I give thanks to God while I'm doing this? Everything's to be received with thanksgiving. If you can't engage in an activity or consume a substance without being thankful to God and having a clear conscience that you are using that substance for God's intended purpose, then you shouldn't be using it. So the good of our neighbor, the case, case study number one is grocery shopping. Here comes case study number two, dinner at an unbeliever's house. Dinner at an unbeliever's house. Verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Now, if you compare verse 25 and verse 27, it's the same instruction. It's the same rule. It says, eat whatever. And then it says, without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. So the same application. You go to the market, you go to your friend's house for dinner, eat whatever is in front of you, 
and don't ask any questions. It sounds like a parent when you go over to, you know, telling the kids, eat whatever is in front of you. Don't ask any questions. Why? Because it's embarrassing when the kids say, I don't want to eat that, or what is that, or that looks funny, or that smells weird. It's rude. And Paul is saying, don't be rude. Don't bother the butcher. And don't dishonor the host. Eat whatever is put in front of you. Now, as we're reading this, we're thinking, okay, this is great. This is really clear. So food in the temple? Absolutely not. Food in the market? Yes. Food at your friend's house? Yes. This is crystal clear. I love this. Put an X beside this and a check mark between these two things, and now I know what I should always do in every situation. Set it and forget it. Finally, I have a rule. I have a list that I can follow. Look at verse 28. But, but if someone, there's always someone, isn't there? Everyone's lining up to get on the bus, but someone, the church is headed in a really good direction with unity and, and on mission, but, but someone the family's all gathered together and everything seems to be going well and everyone's finally getting along. But someone, there's always someone. Every church, every family, every workplace, every neighborhood, there's always someone. And because there's always someone, there's always someone to love. And there's always someone to serve. And there's always someone to look at them and say, I know you're not giving me what I'm entitled to or what I deserve, but I'm going to lay down my rights and I'm going to find a way to love you and serve you in this situation. There's always someone. Verse 28, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you. And for the sake of our conscience, Paul, it was all going so well. X, check mark, check mark. And then this, you know, Captain Monkey Rent shows up and someone has to, you didn't ask any questions, but now someone else is asking a question. Who is this special someone? It, Paul doesn't say who it could be. If you jump down to verse 32, it really could be one, a representative of one of three groups. Look at verse 32. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks. Those are non-Jewish people the majority of Corinthians, or to the church of God. So this could happen. So again, there's multiple moving parts here. You've got the host, you've got the food, there's yourself, there's the other guests. All Paul says is someone. Now they could be Jewish. So obviously, they would take issue with the, because they'd still be following the Old Testament dietary laws that Jesus declared to be null and void by declaring all foods clean. But they would still, their conscience would still be bound by those old laws. They thought that if they followed those laws, they'd be closer to God. Not learning that God came closer to them through Jesus Christ and suffered and died for them on the cross. But they don't understand that yet. So they would take issue with what was on the menu. So if that someone raises an issue, then you, you put your knife and fork down. It also says that the someone... The, we're not supposed to give an offense to Greeks, to non-Jewish people, to Corinthians. And maybe this is the situation, that you're at the table 
And your host says, oh, we're in for a special treat because the steak that you're about to cut into right now and you're, you know, you're licking your lips and you're about to cut into it. He says, this was offered in a sacrifice to, to the goddess Diana. And then, you're, and then you understand that your host is still eating this meal as though there were residual religious significance still in the meat. It's not, I got a great bargain on this at Freshco. It's, we are, we are participating in the worship of idols right now. I know you're a Christian. I know you believe in someone named Jesus, but obviously you still recognize the other gods, don't you? Let's feast together in honor of Diana. Well, then you're, no, knife and fork have to go down. And then the other someone, again, it could be, it could be Jews, it could be Greeks, or it says in verse 32, it could be the church of God. It could be someone who also got invited who has a weaker conscience and they lean over to you and said, I just asked the question. I, I, I asked the chef. And you're like, why did you ask the chef? But it's okay. Because listen, the way to battle legalism is grace. Grace overcomes legalism. And if someone says, I, you shouldn't eat this, we, we, then you're just, okay, pass the salad. We... And I, I know that doesn't this, it seems so clear. It seems so black and white. X, check mark, check mark. Why can't it be more simple? Well, here's why. Because life isn't simple. Because love isn't simple. Because it involves people. And remember, true wisdom is not just knowing the difference between what's true and what's a lie. It's understanding that some lies are so deeply rooted in people that we can't just rip the lie out without doing other damage. That someone, that someone who's behaving the way they are at the bus, at the bus terminal or at your family dinner or in church or in your workplace, there's a reason why that someone is acting that way. There's a reason why that person is so hung up on that issue because there's something that goes really, really deep. It's, it's kind of like those times where we get asked to pray for a, a family member, a church member, a friend, to pray for someone who's about to have cancer surgery. And the aim is to remove a tumor. And we, we've all heard, whether it's them describing it or their spouse, or maybe it's a little, a little child, we hear, we hear the parents explaining what, because you have the pre-op meeting and the surgeon, they always say this when it comes to a tumor. They say, if, it, if it's this one kind of tumor, it's just in and out. We, we can get the whole thing. Certain locations, certain tumors, it's, it's just a very simple surgery. But then sometimes we have to pray extra hard, don't we, when we hear about if the tumor's in the brain or in the spine because the, the surgeon says, we don't know yet, we need, to, we need to operate and find out because that tumor might have spread in, into, the, into the different facets of, 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 of the spine or into the brain. And so it's not just an in and out. And too often we think that on these issues of conscience, it's just a simple surgery. It's just in and out. 
Just because the word of God is the sword of the spirit doesn't mean you always have to be a warrior. Sometimes you need to use the word of God like a scalpel. And you need to be very sensitive. You're not compromising in any way, shape, or form. But you recognize that the, those roots go deep. And if you try to pull this out, it's the, the lies are so interconnected to every part of this person's life. It's hard for us, unless you grew up in a place like that, that where, where idol worship was, was so pervasive. It's hard for those who were raised in a Western context to even understand how interconnected idolatry is with every facet of life. And we have certain lies in our culture that go very deep. And it's, it's not just an in and out job. It requires a lot of sensitivity and a lot of patience. And there may be some mistakes that are made along the way. Maybe we should have cut deeper and we decided not to. Maybe we took a real swing with the sword and, and we did some, some damage rather than doing some good. So Paul says, listen, we, we've got to be sensitive to those who are dining with us. He says at the end of verse 29, we do this for the sake of conscience. Sorry, that was the end of verse 28. 28. Now the beginning of verse 29. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Now, that doesn't seem to flow too well, does it? He just said, lay aside your liberty. Put down the knife and fork. If someone raises a question about conscience... Then lay aside your liberty. And then at the end of verse 29, he says, well, why should I lay aside my liberty? The best way to sort of make sense of what Paul is saying here is to insert parentheses over verse 28 and part of verse 29. Let me show you what I mean. The the parentheses that we find in the New Testament, those have been added by the translators to give us better clarity. Now, the translators of the English Standard Version, who know Greek and know the Bible far better than I ever will, decided not to insert parentheses. But Dr. Uh, Tom Schreiner, other New Testament scholars, suggest that the way to make the best sense of this passage is to insert parentheses around the beginning of verse 28 and the middle of verse 29. So if you read verse 27 and then skip to partway through verse 29, things get a little bit more clear. If if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? See how it flows? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? See how that thought flows? Now, Paul, he's saying that. That's what he wants to communicate, but he gives this little aside. But, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. He's just talking about someone else's conscience and changing your behavior. Then, it's because it's in parentheses, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If no one else asks... At the table, you are free. Don't worry about what someone else might be thinking. But as soon as they articulate it, as soon as someone speaks up, that changes everything. Then in verse 30, he says, If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. 
Paul was being denounced over this secondary issue of eating at one time or not eating at another. And loved ones, this is something that's just really scary that's happening in our church today. There are primary issues, okay? Primary issues like the truth of who Jesus is, that he is 100% man and 100% God, that he is the only savior, that he suffered and died for us on the cross. These are what we call first order doctrines, things that matter, things that you can't be a Christian unless you believe these things. Then there's second order doctrines, Things like that we would disagree with, with other churches on. Things like Presbyterians and baptism. Should you baptize infants or do you need to be a believer before you're baptized? Baptism doesn't save you. It's not a first order doctrine. It's a second order doctrine. And then there's things that are even less and less important. We call those third order doctrines. Things that we can agree to disagree on. It's not a matter of salvation. It's not, it, but, and there's no reason to denounce someone over a third order or a second order, you would only denounce someone and say they're not a Christian if they, if they disbelieve a first order doctrine. Do you, do you follow what I'm saying? And what Paul is saying, why are you denouncing me over food? And what, what's scary about the church is we've taken something that belongs here, or let's be honest, it belongs here. I, truth be told, it belongs here. And this has happened in the last two years. Something that belongs under here is all of a sudden up here. You're not a Christian unless you believe this. That's messed up. Paul says, why should I be denounced over something like food? Just because you have a weak conscience doesn't mean that you should condemn me over something that is a third or a fourth order doctrine. And notice the emphasis on thanks. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks, thankfulness. This is something we practice as Christians. Sometimes it comes by rote, I gotta admit, it happens in our family sometimes too, you know? Half of us are paying attention, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food, amen, cha-cha-cha. That's what we say at our house. But there's, there's a biblical principle of being thankful, whether we're with our family or with friends or by ourselves, to stop and say thank you. Before Jesus fed the 5,000, I mean, it was pretty urgent. We've got to get these people fed. But before he did anything, he gave thanks. At the Lord's Supper in chapter 11, verse 24, just, just the next chapter, Paul said that Jesus, after he had given thanks, took the bread. That we're to be thankful for what God has given to us. It's a practice that all of us need to be engaged in, thanking God for our Food. Then he says in verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You see, we, we may not ever find ourselves in a situation where we might be tempted to eat food sacrificed to idols or someone would bring up something as it relates to idolatry. Some people, based off their upbringing and their family and their friends, this is an everyday reality for them that they're dealing with. Others of us, it doesn't. But Paul here generalizes the principle. He says, whatever you do, eating, drinking, do it all for the glory of God. And this is ultimately where he's heading. He started with the good of our neighbor, the two case studies, and then the, the fourth and final point is this, the glory of God. This is the ultimate aim. The question that we need to ask ourselves is, not am I allowed, but is this loving? And how can we know what is truly loving? That can be highly subjective. Is it loving to God and is it loving to our neighbor? Is, it, is what we're doing bringing glory to God? This is, this is the burning question that we all need to ask ourselves. 
that what we chose to, uh, to watch on television last night or what we scrolled through on our phones this morning, could we say, I'm, could we audibly say, right now, I'm doing this for the glory of God? That in our work and in our conversations, in our tone of voice when we disagree with someone or we feel hurt or feel let down, can we say, I am, I am speaking this way right now for the purpose of bringing glory to God. That's the ultimate aim. Eating, drinking, all of our life. The aim, the glory means brilliance, brightness, beauty. It means to be worthy of praise and adoration. That's the reason for which we were created is to give glory to God. So Paul lifts us right up to heaven and he says, the whole point of everything we do is for the glory of God. And then immediately, rather than giving us some doxology or just so, so go and sing some songs about how great God is, immediately after talking about the glory of God, he brings us right back down to earth. Verse 32, give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. How do we glorify God? Not just by singing. Not just by thinking gloriously, theologically accurate thoughts about God. All of those things are good. How do we glorify him? By ensuring that we give no offense. By being sensitive to Jews, to Greeks, and to the church of God. Three uh, groups of people that are all mentioned there. And we're not supposed to give an offense. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, that we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Paul says, listen, the factory default settings of the gospel already come with a pre-offensive message. Uh, offensiveness... A stumbling block is part of the gospel because you can't start talking about the gospel without saying, I just wanted to let you know that you're a sinner. People don't like to hear that. People like to give all kinds of reasons and justifications to explain why they do what they do. People do not. It's offensive to try to convince someone that they are a sinner. It's good news for us. We're thankful. But we got to remember that was a bitter pill for us to follow at first, to admit that we were wrong. And then some people... They can get that far. Yes, I know I've sinned. I know I've done something wrong. I'm addicted to some things. I need some freedom. I need help. And then we get told, it, the next stumbling block is, and the only way for you to make yourself right is not by working harder, but by placing your faith in a Savior who suffered and bled and died the death that you deserve for your sin. That's offensive. It was folly to Greeks. It was a stumbling block to Jews. So Paul is saying, Give no offense. The cross is offensive enough on its own. Don't put additional obstacles in the way. Clear the way for them to get in front of Jesus as quickly as possible. And if he becomes a stumbling block, so be it. If he becomes their savior, praise the Lord. That's his aim. Verse 33, just as I try to please everyone in everything, I do, in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many that they may be saved. That's the aim. Get them in front of the cross. Get them focused on Jesus. Let them stumble over the cross, not stumble over my rule that I made up or stumble over my lack of sensitivity to some other people's rules. 
Get them before the cross that they may be saved. He talks about Jewish people and Greek people. They're lost. And he talks about the church of God. They're, they're the people of God who are saved. So really, th- these are our marching orders, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Our, our, our aim is really threefold, to evangelize the lost, to edify the church, and to glorify the Lord. If we stick to those three things, if we're trying to do good to our neighbor, what do our lost neighbors need? They need the gospel. They need a consistent gospel witness What does the church need? They need to be built up and encouraged in their understanding of the gospel. What does the Lord need? The Lord needs nothing. What does the Lord deserve? The Lord deserves glory. That's why we exist. And then Paul says, he says, I I make it my aim to please everyone in everything. And what what is he saying there? Paul, his aim is to please everyone in everything. I I mean, that's impossible. You can't please everyone. You can't simultaneously please a Jewish person and a non-Jewish person when it comes to dietary laws. So what is Paul saying? Well, he's certainly not contradicting what he said elsewhere. Like when he was talking to slaves in Colossians chapter three, he said, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Please them in everything. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers. So don't be a people, please people, but don't be a people pleaser. But with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So yeah, you can be a people pleaser as long as the foundation behind that is to please the Lord. You can't just always please people. Paul made it so clear in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So Paul, he knows he's not a, a, a people pleaser. That's not what he's about. So go back to the text and look what he's saying. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, and then he explains what he means. Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. He's contrasting Am I doing good to myself or am I doing good to my neighbor? That's what he's saying. When he walks into the room, when he walks into the neighborhood, when he walks into the church, he's not focused on his own good. He's focused on the good of others for the glory of God. And then he says in chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul had already said, hey, imitate me. This is how I handle my finances. This is how I handle my life. I'm all things to all people. I'm like an athlete who disciplines themselves. Imitate me, but he doesn't just say imitate me. He says imitate me as I imitate Christ. Loved ones, do we need a greater example of what it means to do good to our neighbor and to glorify God than our Savior Jesus Christ? Who who from the very beginning did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but was in the very form of God, but took on the nature of a servant by becoming human. And remember, Jesus walked in every city, every home, every situation that Jesus walked into. Imagine if Jesus said, if he walked in and said, what do I deserve? What would he have said? Everyone on your knees. You know, forget that. Everyone on your face. Actually, no. Everyone dig a trench and then put your face there. Because that's what he deserved. But the Son of Man did not come to be served. He didn't come to get what he deserved. He came to serve. And what did he do? For the good of the neighbor and the glory of God. He suffered and died on a cross for our sin. So loved ones, 
loving our neighbor, doing good to our neighbor and glorifying God is not just difficult, it's downright bloody. It will hurt. That as we imitate Christ, we gotta take up our cross and follow him. We gotta die to ourselves daily. We gotta get up on the altar, Romans 12, as a living sacrifice for the glory of God. Choice after choice, situation after situation. We don't ask ourselves what's allowed. We ask ourselves what is loving. And if we have any question of what that looks like, we look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, you are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Lord, you are worthy of us living lives that imitate you. God, we thank you. Where would we be, Lord, if, if, if the Lord Jesus Christ did not come to serve, if he did not come to do good to us and to glorify your name? And so, Lord, we thank you that in your mercy and in your kindness you have allowed many people who are in this room to look at the cross and not see a stumbling block and not see a means of offense but to see a way of salvation and Lord I, I pray in Jesus name if there's anyone here today who does not yet know you that they would turn from their sin and trust in you as savior and Lord may we do nothing as a community and nothing as individuals that would put unnecessary stumbling blocks in the way of people being edified and built up in their faith or people being welcomed into the faith. Lord, all glory belongs to you. Jesus humbled himself and became a servant and now he is exalted. Now he is glorified. Now all praise and honor and glory and adoration belong to him and to him alone. Glory be to Jesus Christ. Glory be to God. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.